welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. I'm excited to let everyone know about the Doing the Work collection in partnership with Things Social Workers Say. We've got hoodies, tees, mugs, and tote bags. Now you can rep the podcast you love while you're doing the work. Check out the link in the show notes and head on over to the store. Thanks for supporting this work. In this episode, I talk with Hayden Dawes, who is a PhD student, researcher, therapist, clinical social worker, speaker, and compassion warrior in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hayden talks about his work on mental health disparities and equity, training clinicians with a cultural humility and anti-racist focus, and how all of this connects to policy. We discuss the need to talk about race, racism, and other forms of identity and systemic oppression within the clinical setting, as well as work on ourselves. Hayden explains some of his approaches to teaching and talking about racism, white privilege, and homophobia, rooted in a structural analysis. He shares how he looks at how internalized oppression affects him, particularly negative internalized messages, and how he has done that work clinically with clients, who are primarily people of color and LGBTQIA, to identify when the oppressor is speaking. Hayden emphasizes the need for white therapists to talk about race and racism with white clients, and how racism should not only be a conversation for black and brown folks. We get into a discussion about identity, spaces, and different ways of pushing for change. Hayden also shares about how he got into this work. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode's sponsor, the University of Tennessee Knoxville College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UTK has a phenomenal social work program with the opportunity to do your bachelor's, master's, and doctorate of social work online. Of course, they also have excellent classes in person in both Knoxville and Nashville. UTK is committed to preparing social workers who will support human potential and dignity and challenge racism and all forms of oppression. Scholarships are available. Go to www.csw.utk.edu to learn more. And now, the interview. Hey Hayden, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on here and get the chance to interview you. You know, I've been following your work for a while, so just want to welcome you on to doing the work. I am so thrilled and excited to be with you and to sort of share myself with your listeners. I've been following your work for a while as well, so I too am excited. Awesome. So let's just start out with you sharing a little bit about what you currently do. Yeah, so my journey has led me currently to be a PhD student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I primarily look at mental health disparities and inequities and how can we create better mental health systems that serve more people, especially people of color and LGBTQIA identified folks and people that live at that intersection. Um, I also do quite a fair bit of training of clinicians on cultural humility and cultural competency and sort of anti-racism and having people look at their own stuff while they're sitting across and helping others um, 
And of course, that leads to thinking about policies and how certain policies sort of impact access and who's not included. And so those are the things that I'm primarily most steeped in. So I'm learning to tighten up my research skills and to ask better questions and find better ways in which to answer these very important questions so we can push forward the agenda that we social workers do. Yeah, you really do a lot and you covered so much. And I'm kind of like, okay, where do we go in this conversation? And hopefully we're going to hit on all of it. <laughs> um, something. I w- wanted to ask you based on what you just said is the tr- is the trainings that you do, you know, and we will hit on all of it. But, you know, how do those go for you? You know, what's what's the response like? Because you're talking about topics that have that are typically pretty challenging for people um, to talk about even, let alone put into practice. So I'm just kind of wondering your experience with that. Yeah, I think. As I've kind of gone about, I've had to definitely make it my own and use my own voice, my own clinical intuition. When I speak to, in particularly, different therapists, they might be LCSWs, LPCs, psychologists, you know, trying to situate it in the work that they do for them to understand why talking about race in session with sensitivity really matters and why them doing their work outside of session is really important for the therapeutic alliance. Um, I have found it to be very gratifying. I come out of those feeling kind of pumped um, and ready to take on more. It is challenging work and I have to take care of myself with that because it can be really draining to look at people who have not thought about this stuff ever in their life. And you're like, and how long have you been serving people? Mm -hmm. And so it it honestly can be a dose of humility for me to think about like, what are my blind spots and stuff that I'm not thinking about? It's really easy for me to sort of sit in judgment. And so I just try to slow down and be, be with all of it and be that container for folks to work on their biases and to look at them. That's really powerful and incredible because that's hard to do just in and of itself you know and i i personally get challenged with that when i'm educating around these topics mm-hmm. have you found you know certain ways to approach the topic of racism of white privilege of homophobia you know those topics have you found some ways that seem to work better than others Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things is like, we have to make sure that people don't, where we we really definitely go through like sort of the critical race understanding that we are all in this social context, full of these isms. And it's not personal. It's not about you, you know, sort of John Doe white man. It's not about you. And yet it does impact you. And there are certain things that you've acquired in your life just by the nature of what family you were born into. So I really try to depersonalize it as much as possible while at the same time holding people accountable for the ways in which they are being complicit and the ways in which they're perpetuating these systems of oppression. Yeah, I found similar where when we explain how this is a system and it's been around for a really long time, it can take it away from the individual, although there's always... um, in you probably see this in in your work, it feels like there's always that push where like racism gets talked about as like this interpersonal issue and not a structural issue. So how do you keep it? How do you, you know, kind of how do you address that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think 
we have to understand that it, it, in the way in which I'm looking at it right now is there's definitely like three levels to it, right? And so the interpersonal issue, and I also th- think about like the group affiliation piece and how people of color, disenfranchised folks, marginalized people understand themselves as part of a group, part of a larger community. White folks have not had to slow down long enough to think about that they are affiliated with a group that's largely been based on whiteness and whatever that might mean. Mm -hmm. And so helping them understand that people that look like you made certain policies that benefited them and created disadvantages for everybody else. And so... I definitely try to help them understand that you didn't create these laws. You didn't create the system. Your grandparents didn't create the system. It is so embedded in the, in the soil and in the policies and the ways in which we do the project of this country and largely this globe that along the lines of race. And so really slow down and really look at that. And of course, we, you know, we can talk about redlining, we can talk about policing, we can talk about all of these really big structural issues, but you have to find a way then to make it personal. And that's where I think really important narratives can be, can really highlight this for a lot of white folks, for them to understand how this really impacts people on a day-to-day level, even though it's systemic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing that I've been seeing lately is the concept of privilege talked about in kind of like this neutral way where it's and and this is problematic. And it and it's talked about like, oh yeah, like I have privilege, you know, and like I'm going to use my privilege or whatever, but it doesn't also get talked about like me having white privilege means that people of color are oppressed. Like those privileges come at the expense of someone else. I mean, absolutely. I mean, what else is there to say? If if you need that superiority for whatever reason, there is someone that's inherently inferior. Right. I'm going to say that again. If you need the superiority to deal with your own insecurity, someone else will be inferior, period, and subjugated. Yeah. And along with that comes like a host of laws and policies, right? That keep that happening like every day. Yeah. It keeps the structure and the status quo in place when really there are other ways in which we can share power. You know, I'm going to need for you to deal with your insecurity about not being enough. And I'm going to need for you to understand that for me, being empowered doesn't mean that you're necessarily less than. Yeah. And that we can create policies and systems and structures in which they're far more egalitarian than this. Right, which benefit all of us. Absolutely. You know, some of the things I'm like, don't people realize that if Black folk and other people of color were treated better, if there was better structures for them, that white folks would would be better too? Right, (laughs) right. Yeah, there's such a disconnect there. Yeah, and I think part of the disconnect is because the system of white supremacy really has people thinking that we're disconnected, that we're not connected to one another. It really is such an affront to the interconnectedness of humanity. Yeah, and you know, that really gets me thinking about your clinical work, right? Of like taking these really harmful systems, right? And what does this then look like in a clinical session? 
Yeah. And, you know, it's like when I when I was in private practice, I primarily saw people of color and LGBTQIA identified people. And one of the things that's really important for me in my in that work and including with myself is helping them see where that system was operating within them and helping them to dismantle that system from the inside out. Hmm. Showing, seeing where my own internalized oppression and stigma, the ways in which I'm, I'm supposed to walk down the road, what clothes I'm supposed to wear, who I'm supposed to love. Me sort um, silencing myself in whatever way and not being able to use my voice because people that look like me shouldn't use their voice in a certain way. There's certain ways to perform Blackness. I'm not Black enough, or I'm, I'm too gay, or I'm not this enough. Like, really slowing down and confronting how that those systems of oppression dwell within me. And so when I sit across from clients and we're talking about the internalized transphobia, like, let's talk about it. Let's see where you had to inherit that in order to be adaptive in some way to try to try to try to understand yourself. But boo boo, it is no longer serving you. That is just the inner oppressor in you that is constantly wreaking havoc. What can we do to turn down that noise so you can hear something else that's happening inside of you? That's so powerful. And so, and I know this is like, there's not a simple answer for this, but like, so what is, what does turning down the noise look like? Turning down the noise, for me, I think, first of all, is let's see what it's actually saying. What are these voices saying? Let's write them out. Let's put them on a piece of paper. What have you internalized from the media about who you are? Like, I literally might get a sheet of paper and like, let's write it down, boo. And you know, I'm think as you're saying this, I'm like, I have a feeling you probably didn't learn how to do this in social work school. <laughs> I think you know. I think that's a very good point. I probably didn't learn it in social work school, um, but I think my my favorite clinicians and I think the best clinicians are ones that. You got to find stuff that work. I've been surrounded by black women, other disenfranchised folk, white folks that are interested in other ways of doing the work. And I can think about some colleagues that were like, Hayden, when I'm working with certain people, I just have them write down what are some of the internal voices saying about, about them. And so that's one of the things I love about social work is that truly when it's done well, we are passing down lessons to other social workers and we are inheriting lessons from social workers that came before us. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is a big reason why I wanted to get you on here because I know there's going to be social workers listening who can think about, you know, who want, who want to know, like, how do I do this? You know, like, cause it's one thing to learn, read about, you know, s- systems and structures and these, diff- you know, racism. It's another thing to then understand it on another level. And then it's even another thing to like be able to engage that like therapeutically, mm-hmm. right? Clinically. I think you're absolutely right. And it takes trial and error. It takes getting it wrong. You know, some clients can't have the conversation that I'm having about systems of oppression that live within them. They may not be ready. Um, and so sometimes it's about checking our own need to be right and our own need to push too soon. Um, because we have to pick our opportunities wisely, especially when we're talking about working across from another individual, another person. Yeah. 
So if you're kind of getting the sense, you know, you're hearing someone who's saying some of these internalized messages, right? These harmful messages and, and you hear them coming out like in session as they're sharing and, you know, you kind of feel it out, right? But do you, do you just kind of call it like you say, like, like, what would you literally say to them? It depends on the person. You right, know? Like, right. I actually have a quick story. I have a friend that was coming out to himself as being bisexual, and he said what his therapist told him as he was talking out loud. She started waving her hands. She's like, oh my gosh, there's just so much internalized homophobia in here. I can't stand it. The therapist said it? Yeah. <laughs> and, she, and he said, Hayden, it really had me slow down and be like, oh my gosh, she's so right. Hmm. Sometimes we, we definitely have to reflect what we're hearing so people can actually see themselves in the mirror. Totally. So if that's literally what you're hearing, it sometimes that's the most therapeutic thing you can do. It's like, you know, it's, you know, it's like this whole trope about black girl magic, black boy magic. I'm like, y'all, that's cute and all, but like black boy magic and black girl magic will get you dead. Mm. We are working way too damn hard in order to just understand that we are worthy and enough. So some of it, to me, in my mind, is of an overcompensation at times. So we we often think about sort of internalized stigma in this way of not feeling enough, sure. And then there's another side of like feeling like we have to be the most. Mm. I think a lot of hustle, a lot of grind culture comes from this place that is really deeply seated in some insecurity that people have. Like, why do we all have to feel like we have to perform a certain level of being professional, of being business owners? I'm like, because if we really felt like we were okay as we were, would we have to do all of that? Because mm-hmm. I don't care how much money you make, you're not going to not be black. You're not going to be in this really toxic system that is just hell-bent on taking away your humanity. No, you're not worthless. You're not dumb. You're not stupid. But you also don't need to be on the cover of Forbes magazine to be enough either. Mm. And these are the kind of conversations that you'll have. You know it. Yeah, I love it. I, lo- I love it. You know, that le- that, that gets me thinking about something else I wanted to bring up. And, you know, one of the things I know you do from your writing, right, is you really put it out there towards white therapists as well, right? So, I, you know, your clientele, like the people you've worked with um, have been, as you said, mostly people of color, people who are LGBTQIA identified. And then you put it out to white therapists, like, hey, what are you all doing, like, around racism clinically with white people? And I, and I just kind of wanted to bring that in, too, because I think it's such an important perspective that you've been putting out there and pushing. Yeah. You, the reason why a lot of this work, when I started writing about that, came about is because I was looking for someone in the social work, psychology, counseling canon to tell me we could go further than this idea of cultural competency, that we could literally mm. put it wait like talk about the elephant in the room and I-, I couldn't find that person and so i was like well i may have to become that person and so that's when i started doing my own thinking and my own emotional labor to start asking some of these questions because 
white colleagues largely don't think about this stuff. You know, there's a big generational shift, but when I'm in places where I'm with clinicians that have been practicing for 30, 40 years, I mean, we were talking about a whole new universe in terms of race and understanding racism than we were back then. They weren't being trained to to even talk about what was happening in the room unless a client brought it up. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, harm is being done by not at least extending an invitation to talk about this. Yeah, you know, I've wondered why it isn't part of more assessment tools, to be honest, right? To look at, you know, how does racism affect your life? How does sexism affect your life? You know, and just right there, the conversation has started. Well, yeah, and I think this is where understanding history is really important and recognizing that largely there's been this big socialization not to talk about these systems of oppression. Right. And it allows me to have a lot more compassion for those that came before me who even in their well intent made huge mistakes. And I know I'm going to do the same thing. You know, I hope we're in a place where 30 years from now, someone's like, Hayden Dawes wasn't talking about X. I really hope we're there because You know, I remember writing an invitation to white therapists and a white clinician that had been retired was working on a Native American reservation for years with children and their families. And she wrote me an email after I, I put that out there. And she said, Hayden, I feel such regret and sadness Even in that context, we did not ask, how has intergenerational trauma and racism impacted you? Wow. Wow. And it's easy for us to be on our high horse and be like, how could you not? But my thinking is, one day we will be that person, hopefully, that we would have progressed as a people and as a society, that there are certain issues that we are not thinking about today that can be named. And so that we can say, I'm sorry, I didn't do it right. I did the best I could. Right. And that willingness to listen and learn, you know, and and continually, you know, that it never stops, you know, that we never get to some point where we've got this figured out. Right. You know, another thing, I wanted to bring up, I want to read you, um, I want to read you actually something you wrote <laughs> and get your thoughts on, I, I, I'm hoping you'll elaborate on this. And we've kind of already talked about this, but this is from um, Racial Reconciliation, Do White Therapists Talk to Their White Clients About Race, that you wrote for the North Carolina Society for Clinical Social Work. And this, this is a quote, this is your quote right here. I fear that conversations in our field focus too closely on how to assist marginalized and disenfranchised populations in adjusting to the harms caused by an unjust society, rather than treating those privileged folks who unwittingly cause the harm. Care to say more? (laughs) Yeah, I think... So I work with the basic assumption that most of us don't mean to cause harm in the world. You know, I I really believe that even the worst actions are driven by positive intent. 
And when we think about people's white clients out there who are in places of power, they're board of directors, they're CEOs, they're executive directors, they might be supervisors, they're teachers, they're other clinicians, and they're working with within a heterogeneous society that is known as these United States of America, how are you equipping them to see where their own whiteness and the ways in which they've been socialized into being white is causing harm to someone else? Mm -hmm. That some of the policies that they are creating that literally don't see a whole swath of human beings in the world because they're not slowing down long enough to inquire and to ask questions. Yeah, and it's interesting, right? Because like the typical clinical model, and it depends, of course, if you take insurance or don't take, I mean, there's a lot of layers to this, but that that model of, you know, you do an assessment, you um, come up with some, you work on a treatment plan, you come up with some uh, agreed upon goals, you know, how many white clients are going to have as their agreed upon goals, you know, like, oh, I really want to look at my own racism or I really want to look at my own white privilege. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. So we have to put this in context. You, you, if someone can't hear it because they're going to shut down and, and not come back to see you again, of course, don't bring it up then. But I think talking about racism in America, especially in 2021, is far more relevant than you may be talking about your dog at home. You know, I'm not saying that sometimes we don't need to put in something a little bit light just to kind of, you know, I used to with some of my clients, I'm like, let's talk about what happened on Drag Race. Let's bring the temperature down a little bit. But you ask something like, oh, so like, I noticed these headlines in the news. I'm just wondering if there's something that you make of that. Because here's the thing, and this is where I might get a little bit on my high horse. I think a skilled clinician can use everything that's happening in the outside world in the clinical container to address those goals on the paper. So maybe the goal is like how to be less anxious. So I noticed when I brought this conversation up, your face started getting a little bit flush. I'm wondering if we could do some deep breathing around that. I'm wondering if we could do some grounding activities to sort of bring the temperature down. Well, I wonder what is this about talking about these murders happening in the news that make you feel like really anxious? Like, let's talk about the context of like, what is it like to be a white person and for two white people to talk about this? Yeah, we feel anxious. I wonder why we feel anxious. So there we are. We talked about race. There we are. We're we're starting to talk about some of the physical symptoms of anxiety. And we can also talk about the historical pieces of why we don't really talk about this stuff. So boom, boom, boom. It ain't that easy, but I'm just uh, just trying to illustrate that I do think there is a way to weave this in and out. I do agree. Some models of brief treatment, I'm going to see you for four or five sessions. It's not going to work. And I don't know, you know, I'm still trying to thinking about clinicians coming in so much with their own agenda of course you don't readily go in there saying we're gonna talk about x y and z today no sometimes you do have to leave space to see what's happening but the question for me is when the opportunity comes up 
are you running away from that from that piece of when they say a racial slur in session because you were uncomfortable by it or are you worried about them what is this about i think it's important to because that's a really important message for me you know i used to do domestic violence offender groups and Sometimes when some of the men in particular, there was other groups for women, would say something really disparaging for women, to me, I took that as like a really important opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. It connects. I mean, it connects to relationships like you had said earlier, right? Like this idea that we're so all disconnected from each other, um, that segregation is just some natural occurring phenomenon, right? Which we know it's not. Um, that there's a whole bunch of laws that mm-hmm. are the reason, right? We people live in neighborhoods that most of the people look like them, right? And then and then going there clinically on how this affects those relationships, you know, or like you said, anxiety. I mean, I think that's really powerful. I. I, I- I'm so thankful that you asked me that question, partly because it's like the other thing it brings me to is this is another assumption I I, I kind of live with. Because we are so connected, I'm willing to say that even white people have been harmed by racism. Mm -hmm. They don't see their connection to people. And if we want to make it sort of an argument about politics and class, the ways in which poor white folks don't see that more of their economic fates are tied with class struggle along the lines of race, you know, it's been used as such a tool. Absolutely. And I, they too have been harmed from, from it. And that's why we can understand that some of these policies that would benefit BIPOC communities would also benefit them. And so, we, we're all harmed by it. And on a, in a personal level, I think there's a lot of white folks running around with some trauma in their family versus what they hear at the dinner table or what they hear from grandpa and uncle or whomever in the family, auntie, I'm not going to pick on one gender, right? And then when they go home and when they go to school and they hear something different, they there's some discrepancy between what they might hear in certain spaces and what they know of the world and what they think of their black friends and what they think about what is it like to have a romantic feelings of someone that's not of your race. So we, we we're all kind of stimming, swimming in this, in this stew. And I think that's where an opportunity for white clinicians are to unpack some of that with their white clients. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, Kristen Brock Petrosius, who, I interviewed um, a couple episodes ago. Uh, she talks about deep canvassing and deep canvassing white people talking with other white people. And she shared about that too, like the ways that she was able to make those connections, like within her own family, like certain things that were harmful and how they connect to whiteness, you know, but we don't always see it connected to whiteness. We see these things as like in and of themselves, right? Like a toxic, abusive, relationship but when you look at like what those underlying beliefs are they can get connected back to whiteness yeah and i'm so grateful to be a systems thinker and to 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 have language and to have tools and frameworks in order to see how this is all connected as in terms of like what you're learning about you know mental health disparities and inequity 
within mental health, you know, what do you, what do you see as some solutions? Wow. What a big question. I mean, we need a lot of different solutions. Um, I see connection and relationship and systems that create true connection and relationship as probably the best tool that we're going to have. You know, right now we are socially and physically isolated from one another. I mean, we just are, um, partly because of the pandemic. And of course, we can think of sort of the top-down approach is we can't tell people they should spend time with one another. We can't really do that. So from a bottom-up perspective, it's this is why community and civic organizations and group meetings and 12-step meetings, why they're so important because connection truly is the antidote to so many of these so many of these ills. Yeah, that just got me thinking about, you know, I know you're talking about mental health inequities and connection. So like when we think of it in terms of systems, right? And we think of like, where are the spaces for people to connect? You know, where where do they exist? How do we create more? You know, what gets in the way? Mm. Yeah, I think... We're, people are so busy trying to pay the bills right now. So busy trying to pay the bills. It's, it's, it's hard to let go of that constant grind or need to think that you need to make more money in order to get to this certain status where you can just hang out with people just to be with them, you know, and to learn how to play again. Hmm. So many, you know, when you sort of think about like anxiety and depression, so much is this, lack of this understanding of interdependence that we belong to one another, that I need you to do your part so that I can do my part. And I do my part and you can do your part. It's this, our society is because of like capitalism and this constant grind and go, go, go. And I, it, I think it's really one of the, some of the things that really exasperating and worsening our mental health issues already. And I, it's gonna, I'm really curious to see what it's gonna look like once we quote unquote come out of this pandemic. Yeah. I mean, the, the toll that it's taken on teenagers alone is something I don't think we can really fully understand, you know, and children and what this has been like for them to, and I, and I say that as a parent, you know, kind of watching that. And, and so then I, I think going back to what you were saying, how do we carve space for us to share our stories in a real, authentic, held, supportive way? When mental health treatment works at its best, it's an affirming container for people to be who they are. I've been doing a lot more thinking about sort of bisexuality and queerness, and particularly bisexual folks who a lot of people don't know often face worth outcomes and disparities compared to people that identify as being straight or gay. And I think it's this bi erasure constantly having to hide parts of oneself. And we have to open up, you know, just by having conversations and naming that, even just right now with me naming it, hopefully it just carves out a tiny bit more space that that wasn't there before. So people aren't burdened as much by it. Absolutely. You know, you, this idea of carving out space 
I mean, everything you said was was so important just then and this idea of like self-acceptance and self-erasure, you know, and then how to have a space where those conversations can even take place, right? And then I think about like access, right? I think about who has access to these spaces, who has access to therapy. Yeah, and so one of my friends and I were texting back and forth and he said that, you know, people with wealth go to therapy in order to become, in order to improve, performance improvement. People who are on the bottom rungs of the ladder, they go to therapy to survive. And so we have to understand that a lot of the work that gets done, and I did community social work, doing home visits and all of that. A lot of that is just offering a little bit of a lifeline because these systems are really, really hard in our country. Yeah. And people are just trying to survive and make a living. And so sometimes you might be just, what can we do? What coping can we give you? So that way you can maintain and keep this job and not lose it or maintain this housing. You know, it really can feel like a little bit like whack-a-mole. Yeah, there's too many issues happening. And again, it becomes this like individual problem, right? Which we know is, you're right, there's going to be more problems and more problems. You can't address all of them, especially on an individual level, because they're not coming from the end. Many of them are not coming from the individual. Absolutely right. So, you know, we've, we've really talked about quite a bit. Um, I wanted to shift a little bit. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what do you love about this work? Um, I love talking to people such as yourself. It gets me really energized. I really love how there's this self-development process alongside of hopefully being a positive change agent. Um, Hayden, you know, I, I, I have to show up to this party, and yet the party's not about me. And so that's what I that's what I really love about it. It has completely changed my life. It's completely changed me. I feel very grateful for it. Um, it. It can be really hard to confront this amount of human suffering all of the time. Hmm. You know, when you're highly empathetic, you feel it all. You know, every headline, every tweet. Um, you feel all of it. And yet I'm st- oddly very grateful that I'm, I'm able to feel it and I'm not just dead. I'm not numb to it. Yeah. Feeling it can hurt, but it's better to feel it than to be numb. Yeah. I know I'm alive because I feel it. Um, hmm. And I just, I just, at the end of the day, I want to leave a meaningful contribution and I'm grateful that this career in many ways found me and I didn't know how much I needed it for me to better understand myself, understand how these systems of oppression operate within me and to give me more tools in order to sort of dismantle and disrupt it. I love those words, dismantle and disrupt. <laughs> I thought you'd like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to, do you want to share a little bit about, you know, what did how social work did find you? Cause you just mentioned that and it got me thinking, you know, I didn't really ask you your story of how you got into doing this work. Yeah. So my undergrad is in vocal performance. Wow. 
yeah, I thought I was going to be an opera singer traveling the world. And then um, towards the end of my undergrad, I realized my, I was having some vocal, physical vocal issues. And it's just like, you know, I don't think this is really going to be the best career for me. The Great recession happened. And I was like, you know what, you need to get a job. <laughs> and so I started working for T-Mobile inside of um, Walmart and Sam's Clubs. And I also started doing... Um, retail partner sales, working out of like different big box stores. And I remember meeting this woman who, who was, I was trying to sell cable to. And I said, do you want this cable package? And she says, well, does it come with C-SPAN 3? And I said, well, who the heck watches C-SPAN 3? And she says, well, I do. I'm a political science professor. And I said, okay. And she said, well, Hayden, you told me that you want to go back to school. And I was like, yeah. She's like, what degree do you want to get? I said, I want to get an MBA. She said, you don't want to get an MBA. And she herself um, had graduated with a music education degree. And she says, well, I talk a lot of people out of MBAs, she says. She says, well, what about your job do you love? I said, you know, I really love connecting with people, seeing how my products can really fit in their life and shape whatever they might need. And she says, well, what about your job don't you like? I said, I really don't like the numbers. I feel like I'm selling people stuff that's just like, you don't need this. You got bigger issues. (laughs) And she says, well, you really need to look at a master's in public administration. And I said, what's that? She says, well, public administrators, they might be executive directors of a nonprofit, work in local government, all that stuff. And I said, okay. And so then I went home and started looking for different degree programs. And I saw there was some, a lot of degree programs with a joint master's of public administration and a joint MSW. And at the time, my best friend was getting an MSW from UNC. And I didn't, I still didn't know what social workers really did. I read the code of ethics and I was like, you know, this really seems kind of cool. I applied for both programs at UNC, MSW and the MPA, didn't get in either. I applied to NC State for both programs and I was like, okay, I'm going to get two masters. Both program directors said, don't get two masters, just get one, get a PhD in the other. I said, but you know what? I'm going to get two masters. So then I started um, taking MPA classes and I was like, "Mm, this is okay. City government, ordinances. Mm, All right. Started taking the social work classes and I was like, my eyes just got so wide and I was like, oh my gosh, these are my people. I can be black and gay in this space and it's actually an asset I started doing my internships and I was like, I absolutely love this. I, w- I felt, f- I fell really hard for this discipline and I have not looked back. I love that story. You know, I ask, I've interviewed a lot of people and found out their stories of how they got into social work. And I've never heard one where they were selling cable. <laughs> to, I was selling cable. They're selling cable and the person, their customer is the one who educated them on their future career. I love it. Absolutely. And and honestly, Shimon, that is the way that I've lived my life. Because everyone has something to contribute to you. If you are willing to open your eyes and ears and hear it. Yeah, I agree. I And I, I mean, I think it's, that's so awesome. I really love that story. And I hated that job. <laughs> I hated it so much. But look at what it, 
and look at what it led to. I mean, it's, yeah, life is funny sometimes, right? I mean, it really is. Do you, do you still feel like you can be black and gay in the social work space? As much as you felt it when you, you know, when you first started? This is a good question. I'm going to answer in a lot of different ways. And you can take it the wherever you want to take it. I think, now this is me thinking more on the universal level. I think all of us struggle with this sense of, do we belong here? I can talk to the most straightest of straight, whitest of white, manliest of manliest men. And I can look in his eyes and I can see there is that piece of him that says this world is not for him. Hmm. What I will say is I'm not going to lead you astray. There have been plenty of spaces in social work in other places where I'm like, I am really recognize that my body in that place is a political act. Mm-hmm. And I try not to forget that because I really can't forget it. You know, my partner and I, sometimes when we have people come over to the house, like, you know, to do sort of maintenance jobs, we always have that, like, that little bit of catch in our breath. Like, what are they going to think? How are their eyes going to be? That happens. And, but I think the difference for me in a social workplace and where I feel like I've become more myself is that I don't really care anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not arguing with people on Twitter, on any social media platform, or any building. Put me in the White House with 45 himself. I am not arguing with you about my humanity. Mm -hmm. Because it is not on the table, boo-boo. It's just not. I think if you constantly, for any of one of us that doesn't feel like we belong in this world, which I think is all of us, if you allow that to be on the table, it forever will be. And it will always be a chip against you. Yeah, your humanity is not up for debate. So I don't go into spaces like, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to occupy all of the space that is me, no more and no less. I think there's enough space for all of us. So when I go into certain social work spaces, don't get me wrong, I use my tokenism as much as possible to my advantage and leverage. Does it sometimes feel gross? Yeah. Do I hate it? But what else am I going to do? Yeah, it's it's there. You it, you can't avoid it, that being like that right now at this point in time, you know, and that's part of how insidious all of this is. Yeah, I remember sitting on a panel um, at the institution I go to school at because you know I didn't get into NC, um, to UNC for my master's, but I'm here for my PhD. Oh. How you doing? <laughs> um, Boom! Right. I remember sitting on a panel, and some of the students were talking about, well, if if this was a panel talking about field placements and thinking about finding affirming spaces for queer identified students. And students were saying, you know, really it's up to the field office to find places that are comfortable. And I was like, I, I, I can hear that argument. Sure, fine, I get it. But if there's not certain buildings that I'm willing to walk through, 
how the heck am I going to expect anyone else to walk in there after me? I I think I I I have a, a radical acceptance of this is where we are and this is who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm not angry at anybody. I'm not trying to blame anybody. This is just, it is, it is. And I, I really, and I mean it, like that's the kind of, that is when I'm like, this is when I'm tapping into all the ancestors that have done some serious stuff to dismantle and break some systems. Because I assure you, their humanity was not negotiable. Yep. If you make it negotiable, people will smell it and they will use it against you. You know, and it and it it takes people like you who are willing to go into those spaces and it and it also takes folks who have had it and they're not willing to go into those spaces and they need they want a space that's that they can be in comfortably right now, you know? And and I think that's something that is so important that sometimes gets left out of the conversation is like, it takes, it's going to take all of us to transform this. Yeah. I'm not in my head right now. For those who can't see, I absolutely agree with you. And you have to understand that there needs to be inside agitators and outside agitators and knowing who you are when. Yeah, that is big. You know, I, I saw a presentation once I was at a presentation once, like when I went to things like that in person and um, the speaker was talking about being an activist in a non-activist space. And it like just hit me so hard because it w- it really described what that what my situation was at the time. Mm-hmm. And the tensions that I had felt so much of, right? And it was like and it, it connects to what you were just saying like we need to know who we are and we need to know the spaces that we're in and what that means. Yeah, and it can and it can indeed change. Right. And, you know, just to keep it sort of honest, there are times where I compare myself to other folks and I'm like, am I doing enough? They're doing it this way. But I do think we have to slow down to listen to our own sort of inner teacher, our own inner guide that tells us where we ought where we ought to be to make this work sustainable for us. There are certain ways of doing activism that I don't really think would suit me very well. And that's okay, because like you said, there's enough space for us all to do it in a way that makes an impact and makes a change. And it's so easy to compare ourselves or to point fingers at other folks as to who's doing it, quote unquote, right. Totally. Yeah. You know, as we're starting to wrap up, I wanted to bring up two things because I know you've got a newsletter that we want to tell people about and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And then also I know something else that's really important to you is radical permission. Yeah. So in 2018, I started sharing on Instagram a hundred days of me writing a permission slip to myself. Today I give myself permission to enjoy my rest and to not feel guilty about it. Um, today I give myself permission to affirm my humanity in the face of all this dehumanization. Mm. And it was just a, a practice that honestly, I just started sharing it on Instagram because I thought it was helpful for me to stay accountable, but other people were writing in saying that it was helpful for them. And so back in this past summer, 
as I felt like COVID was making my life smaller, I thought, I need to recognize that I do have autonomy right now. So what is some permission giving that I can give myself for the next several days? And I thought, well, what if I invited other people to join along with me? So it's just hashtag Rattlepool permission. And so I model writing a permission slip to myself and other people do the same. And it's just become this lovely community of people supporting themselves in listening to their own voice and doing the things in life that they don't give themselves permission to do. It's really cool. It's a great use of social media too. Yeah, it's it's really been really impactful. And I think it's and it's more things like that that I really think will create new systems because the time to gather more data as to the changes that need to be made for me is largely over. We need to do the things. And that takes us taking risks calculated risks, inner risks, outer risks. And that permission slip allows you to take that risk. That's awesome. That's really great. Yeah. So for people checking out the podcast, you know, check out hashtag, what is it? Hashtag radical permission. Yeah. Hashtag radical permission. Um, Mostly like Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. Cool. And then let people know about your newsletter. Yeah, so I write a monthly newsletter. It's It talks about my research or somewhere where you might find me doing a training. It's become an offering, something that I really enjoy doing once a month. Sometimes we forget, like, what did I do this past month? But that week where I'm getting the newsletter together with a friend, it's a great way to sort of start compiling some things. So you might see some old interviews this interview, once it's been posted, I will advertise it on there. And it's a way to stay connected to the community that I'm hoping to create. Great. Yeah. And so I'll, like I said, there'll be a link in the show notes. It'll be on the Doing the Work website. And Hayden, you know, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on here to, to have this really amazing conversation. Like I, I get energized too. Like I feel energized talking with you. And I just want to thank you for doing the work in the community. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I don't know if you're a hugger, but I would give you a big hug. I know you're down there in Florida, right? Yeah, Miami. Yeah. Um, So I've had a great time this afternoon. You asked great questions, had me thinking, and it's lovely to find new ways of explaining things. So thank you so much for that opportunity. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.